Welcome to episode number 260. Today's episode is really a fun one. We are diving into permaculture, which permaculture kind of has a, I hate to use the word trendy, but it has a lot of interest and has kind of made this huge leap and there's more awareness of using permaculture methods. And the cool thing about permaculture is it's best known for maximizing production in large agriculture lands, but the rules are working with nature, right? And so nature is universal, regardless if you're using it upon acres and acres of growing crops or in a small backyard or small backyard garden or small space, the the rules and laws of nature, they, they don't really change. <laughs> so you can use permaculture principles that can help you grow your own food even, and maybe even, not just even, but especially if you've got a small, tiny backyard or garden plot. Today's episode, I have guests on, which is really fun. And I think this is the first time that I have ever had a guest actually sing. You're going to love it, though. It's not what you think. It's a way to help you remember some of these principles as you go about applying permaculture to your garden and your yard. But I'm super excited to introduce you to Nikki and Dave from Permaculture Gardens. Nikki and Dave are passionate about helping families grow their own food. They run permaculture gardens at growmyownfood.com. And what's really cool is they, even with strict homeowners association, where it can't really have a, what we would think of as a typical vegetable garden in their front yard and their backyard, which is really small and has a lot of shade. But they have been able to use these permaculture principles to grow in shady spots and in a small backyard, but to pack a ton of food. And they've, you'll, you'll hear it in the episode, they've actually documented how many pounds of food they get out of this small space. So it's really incredible. And not only is that part incredible, but the way that they break it down and share it so that you and I can use these same principles and applying to our spaces to grow more food. So without further ado, let's drive straight into this interview. There's a lot of fun stuff and value-packed information in it. And to get to any of the resources that we mentioned, uh, links and everything like that, you can go to melissaknorris.com forward slash 260, which is the number 260, because this is episode number 260, uh, because I'm sure you're going to want to dive into a lot of the information that we're sharing in today's episode. So guys, I'm really excited to talk to today's guest because they have really mastered growing a food garden in a relatively small amount of space. So Nikki and Dave, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Thanks so much Melissa. for having us, Melissa. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you guys because as we move further into the landscape of COVID-19 and restrictions, uh, travel, and even just uh, food supplies, we have a lot of grocery stores that are running out or having a hard time stocking things. I really feel that we're going to see more and more people turning back to gardening and growing some of their own food. It may be something that they had wanted to do. It kind of been on the plans, like someday I'm going to get to this or man, I, you know, I want to do this 
later on, but now this is there later. Like it came sooner, I think, than a lot of people anticipated. But I know I have a lot of listeners and a lot of people have the need to grow their own food this year, but they don't maybe have a really large, they don't have acreage or they don't even have a really large backyard or a huge lot. And so a lot of times people feel, well, I just don't have the space to really grow very much. And so I'm really excited to talk to you guys because you live in a very urban environment and you use the concept of permaculture and a food forest in an urban environment, which I feel is uh, not as commonly done. So can you tell people a little bit about your growing space and then how you guys do some of your different plots? Well, I'll start off and then Dave can chime in with more of the details, but we grow in 140th of an acre which in a tiny townhouse flanked by other townhouses. So we're not an edge townhouse. And we definitely start, we didn't have, we grew 90 pounds of our produce a year. And that slowly crept up to now 300 plus pounds a year, which basically translates to 25% right now of our fruits and vegetables. And the way that we did this is um, something that Dave calls multipliers. So Dave can, can talk a little bit more about your sure. So, so we're applying permaculture in our small yard to maximize the amount of, uh, because we have a small space, we have to be really efficient. So there's, there's things that you can do just to kind of easily multiply the harvest that you get out of there. So we're doing four season gardening. So we actually rotate three separate crops through the annual crops, the same space. We're also growing perennials in that same space. So we're doing a, a rich, diverse polyculture of both perennial and annual crops. In the front yard, we have a, a pretty strict HOA. So the, the, the first year I was doing experiments with pumpkins. It's probably not, a, not the greatest <laughs> idea. <laughs> and, and now we, we are a lot more concerned with the aesthetic. We still grow a lot of edibles in the front yard, but it's, we have to keep the rampant foliage down. So we do most of our gardening in our backyard. What we've done is we put a fence around our backyard. So it's, it's maybe a total of 20 square feet by 25 square feet. And we've made uh, a keyhole beds in the center of that. And then uh, L L-shaped beds along the, um, along the fence. And then, uh, so we, we do four season gardening. That's one of the things that we do. It's just an easy way for us to multiply the harvest that we get. We also have trellising. So what we've, uh, we use something called a cattle fence panel, mm -hmm. kind of uh, bent that over into a hoop. And we grow a, a lot of vertical crops. So you can grow things like melons and lots of uh, pole beans and things like that vertically. And it takes up a lot less um, horizontal space. Um, Plus the sides are espaliered, which just means to train the trees that we have some fruit trees in the backyard as well in uh, like a, a shoulder by shoulder fashion where things are lined up like an old English garden <laughs> against and they're fruiting hopefully that way as well, as well as the blackberries. But sorry to interrupt you, Dave. 
Yeah, a, a lot of people don't realize that in a small space, you can utilize dwarf fruit trees. To, uh, in, our, in our backyard, we have about uh, 10 fruit trees. So as long as you're using dwarf fruit trees and keeping them pruned down to about six to eight feet tall, and you can also espalier them, so that, that actually um, trains them along a, a to, to use even less space. So you could you can actually get a lot in a small yard. So you guys have so I love that you said a fortieth of an acre, and in my mind I'm like. I don't even think I can comprehend a 40th of an acre. <laughs> so that was the, when you said the 20 by 25 foot, that's primarily in your backyard. And that's some, the majority of the growing space that you have. And then when you were explaining your beds, I'm assuming that these are raised beds or is it in ground gardening or is it a combination of both? Uh, so they're, they're raised beds. We originally use um, wood as a edging we're now kind of in the, the process of converting that over to brick, but um, yeah, they're, they're, they're primarily raised beds, but there's a, in the center is kind of like a keyhole shaped bed. So it's not rectangular. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. It they're still a, raised. Uh, yeah. Okay. Perfect. I just, I know people, I always, I have to have the, the visual in my mind. <laughs> like cemented when we're talking about it. Um, and so thank you for that. I just wanted to make sure that I was envisioning it right as you guys were explaining and going through there. So I also love vertical gardening, even though I do have acreage, we use a lot of vertical gardening. Pole beans are one of my favorite. You're talking my love language there for just mm -hmm. the exact same reasons that you guys listed as well as in a humid and more wet climate like I live in. It, it helps to cut down on disease when I have things up vertically mm -hmm. because of the airflow too. But one of the, the questions is, what is your guys's, I'm very curious um, about when we grow four seasons, because I try to grow year round as much as possible, even being pretty north. But what is your guys's climate like? Like when is your average um, first frost in the fall, or excuse me, yeah, your first frost in the fall and then your last frost in the spring um, and in your gardening zone and just kind of your, your overall climate there? Yeah, we're grown. we are USDA 7B. And first frost, last frost, Dave, you would know better than me. So, yeah, we start to get light frost maybe in, um, I'd say, late October. And then we'll start to get heavy frost in uh, the beginning of December. So it, it's, it's temperate, but it does warm up pretty quickly in the spring. But then you can get, it's very um, temperamental in the sense that uh, you can get temperatures in the winter that get down to about six degrees Fahrenheit. But generally, temperatures in the winter will get down into the, the 20s or the teens. So um, it, we can grow some kind of subtropical uh, trees here. We have some uh, fig trees in the front yard. I have some fajoa bushes in the front yard that, were, that are able to survive. We try to push the edges too. So because our summers are very humid and hot, we do a lot of the tropical like ginger, turmeric. We try to do those kind of cash crops. 
um, because they're expensive to buy. They're very healthy and we use them a lot for herbals. And then um, we, we can extend the edges. Like I was just looking at the USDA temperatures like today for when can we do potatoes? We're already, you know, doing potatoes out and um, you know, it's late for fava beans for us right now and late for peas. But as the climate changes too, we have been finding there are more warm things that we can grow. And um, yeah, as to the cold season, cold season, we do use hoops. So our raised beds, we um, curve a, an electrical conduit, which is $3 to buy from Home Depot. And so we bend that hoop and then we put uh, Agribon row covers around at the beginning of the fall season uh, towards, you know, as it gets colder and colder, that's the first layer. And when the snow comes in, then we cover that with a second layer of more of plastic material, which we reuse every year. That helps like, us grow carrots through the winter. Our um, Jerusalem artichokes are already in February, so we still harvest things throughout the year, um, lettuces and radishes. We, we started them like in February under the hoops and then now they're ready. So the cool thing about the load tunnels is it, it doesn't provide a ton of protection, but it provides maybe like 10 to 15 degrees. So you can grow a lot of these things that can tolerate a light frost. They're, they're somewhat hardy. Um, and that, that's usually enough. Surprisingly enough, it's, even if the temperatures get down into the, the low tens, uh, they, they pretty much will stay alive. So there's a lot of things like lettuce that we can grow through the winter that we wouldn't be. Sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, love. And we're always trying to experiment as well with the varieties that work in our climate and suggest the ones that might work in our other clients' climates because we do have people that we help around the U.S. who have different climates. And then we think this didn't work so well for us. But in Washington, because you're colder, I think this might not bolt when we, if you use it. And so we do like um, trading those kind of secrets around. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I love that. And I'm, I'm very much like you guys. I love to push the envelope and just see, well, will this really work or will it not? I feel like my garden is like one huge test and science uh -huh. experiment. Yes. Yeah. And it's really, it's really fun. And it's interesting because I'm 7A technically on the USDA map and you guys are 7B, but yeah. Our, so it's so fascinating because those gardening zones are great for knowing, you know, your perennials, usually if they're going to survive the low temps in the winter. But as far as like planting dates and all of that, it's so vast and it's so different, um, which is something I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I find myself having to um, really share that a lot, especially to new gardeners, because they, they think, oh, well, you, like technically I'm zone seven, even though I'm seven A and you're zone seven B, but our planting dates and frost dates are going to be pretty different on a lot of things. And unfortunately, a lot of new gardeners jump in and are like, oh, um, I'm just going to plant everything according to, you know, zone seven. And it's like, oh, that's, that's not always the best, <laughs> the best idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm with you guys with the, the hoop houses and some are um, unheated high tunnels and et cetera during the winter months, I find that in the coldest part of the morning, I have an infrared thermometer that I go out and I make sure oh, the wow. soil temps. <laughs> I'm such a geek. No, that's wonderful. <laughs> and I find when it's like right before the sun starts to hit the coldest type, I will find about a consistent, I can count on at least a five degree 
warmer inside mm-hmm. um, with a single layer at five mm-hmm. degrees with a single single layer of extra protection warmth. So I can like you guys, I can grow lettuce all year round. I do find because I don't supplement with any light and I'm assuming that you guys don't either that mm-hmm. for the lettuce and stuff, as long as I have it already somewhat established, like by the first part of um, December, because we're a little bit warmer the first part of December usually than we are come January and February, um, that that it'll grow really slowly. So if I've already got it established, then I can continue to harvest off of it. But I don't get a ton of growth until usually the end of February when we get more light and things start to warm up just a little bit. Um, yeah. Do you notice that too? Yeah, we definitely do. Like now is, and then when, when the, when the light comes, then it's, everything starts bolting. Then you're, then you have to be fast with the harvest. And, and then we find that now that's where our varieties really, really matter because then we're like, what is the slow bolting lettuce that we can, um, because for here, at least in our experience, the lettuce starts bolting as soon as it gets like right now. They're, they're starting to turn bitter. But in the back, in our backyard, in the front yard, because we do have lettuces in the front yard, the HOA don't recognize them <laughs> as lettuces. <laughs> so, so those ones are bolting. Um, but the ones in the, yeah, the ones in the back that are darker are not yet. I, what, um, what is your experience, Dave? So our, our backyard actually is facing north. So we, we get uh, probably six months of shade. <laughs> and... Um, that means that the temperatures back there, it, it warms up much slower than the front yard. Um, so we just have to plan that accordingly. We, we kind of get this intense growing season during the summer mm-hmm. where we get a, we can grow a lot of vining crops, but it, it also means that things that might be late uh, to put uh, uh, in the front, like peas now, might it's uh, it's starting to be maybe a bit too late we can get away with putting them in the back because the temperatures just won't be um that warm in the back it's it's this weird microclimate where it's like five to ten degrees cooler in the back and most of the perennials don't care because they they have all these reserves stored up in their in their root systems but for annual crops it's it's almost like an offset growing season in the in our backyard yeah, isn't it? It's amazing when you begin to really evaluate your property and to track these things because 10 degrees doesn't seem like that much, but it can be a really big difference to crops. I noticed the same thing that 10 degree mark can be like an excellent harvest and the plant is thriving, to it really struggles and you hardly get anything. Um, and I love that you're using the north part and are still sharing that you're able to grow quite a, quite a bit of food in that because a lot of people do have areas that they're very limited on their space and they do have shady areas and areas that are in that northern facing that don't get as much sunlight and therefore don't get as much heat. But you guys are, are able to find ways to make it work for you. So I love that. Um, in those more shady and the cooler areas, what are some of the crops that you found? I know we just mentioned peas, of course, um, but what are some of the crops that you have found do the best in those cooler and or shady areas and still give you a pretty good harvest? Well, right now we're growing a lot of herbs back there and rhubarb is always a big standby stinging nettle, which is great. Um, a companion plant to tomatoes. We do grow tomatoes there and we look at the, this is one of the um, the things that 
about permaculture is just really studying your space and looking for those microclimates. So there are, even within that microclimate of a cooler space, there are little pockets where they're, they're warmer than the others. And that's where we plug in tomatoes, rotating them um, still so they don't, they're not in the same space, but yeah. clo close to that same space. And, um, you know, putting that stinging nettle and the, flat, the marigolds, making sure that we have pollinators in there for them, um, oregano. Uh, it was kind of an, ex an experimental thing where I think the first years we, we made some mistakes, like we, we put in, uh, we tried things out. So we put in some root crops, discovered that those don't really grow well without a lot of sun. But I think uh, the things that do well are a lot of these perennials that uh, don't need as much light. So we've, we've got a whole bunch of different uh, berry crops in the back. We have gumi berries, we have gooseberries, we have elderberries, strawberries, blackberries. So we find like berries in, in general can grow pretty well in partial shade. You might not get quite as much harvest, but you still get enough that it's worth uh, kind of filling out your, your space with those different berries. And then the, the, in terms of fruit trees, we try to pick ones that grow in the understory. So historically, they might have grown in a, in a forest underneath taller trees. So they're used to not getting as much sunlight. So that our big producers there, uh, as we have pawpaw trees. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I just planted pawpaws last week, and I'm still, like, so excited and geeking oh, out. Yeah. So, yeah, and you're, you're right. I, that's what I found in my research, and, and I, I had a, a gentleman um, from the nursery that they came from came out and um, totally different than your regular fruit trees, in my experience, because they do need to be in that understory. So when you said pawpaw, I'm sure you, you heard my breath go like, oh, like, I'm so excited. <laughs> it is really exciting the first time you plant the pawpaw because it's very it's very quick to yield and um, you may need like, it may need some help pollinating. So you have, how many pawpaws do you have? I have, I just have two, but they're both of different varieties. So they're cross pollinating varieties. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, so we have two as well and they yield pounds of fruit and that's where the tropical, they say that's an, an interesting, I'm sure you probably already <laughs> geeked out on, on the origins of the pawpaw, but um, perhaps for your audience. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, please share. I, I'm, I'm very fascinated by all things pawpaw right now. It's like my, my <laughs> pet thing. So, so please indulge. Yes. <laughs> yes, there is a book called Pawpaw. It's like a red book, I think. And, um, or no, I, I, I'm thinking of a different, a different book, but pop, there is a book all about the pawpaw tree right now. And the, historically, they say that it was, that when the temperatures were still like tropical or hotter, then it was one of those tropical fruits that got stuck here and somehow those, you know, the mastodons or whatever, they, they pooped it out and it just acclimatized to this area. And here we have like a relation to the mango or um, the, you know, the, the tropical, uh, it's like a cross between the banana, right? They say that in, in the Philippines where I come from, it really, when my, I had my parents taste it. They said it tasted like what we called atis, which right now I can't remember what it. Cherimoya. Cherimoya or custard, custard, custard apple, custard apple. That's what it okay. is. And they were like, oh, this is definitely that custard apple they said in, in Tagalog. And, and so it was just, that's just 
for me, it's just thrilling to find something that, <laughs> again, like it pushes the envelope. It's really delicious, and um, the, the kids weird, just the eat it like ice thing cream. Is, is you have to. It's one of these ancient trees, so yeah. it's, it it doesn't attract your typical pollinators. It's actually pollinated by flies. Yeah, that's um, what he was telling me. In fact, he said that the blossom, which actually planted it out in the where we have some um, alders and maples and some cottonwoods. So it's in that understory, but not underneath the evergreens. And it's in our cows can get there. So I'm going to protect it from that. But he was saying it's probably good that you have it a little bit further than your house because he was saying it was the flies pollinated. And he said the blossoms don't always have a pleasant scent to them necessarily because they are attracting the flies. Have you noticed that at all? Um, for our varieties, we don't notice any scent. And okay, uh, there were years that we didn't pollinate them and they didn't give us as much fruit. So we've been hand pollinating them just to oh, be sure. Have. Okay. Um, we have seen the zebra or the, the swallowtail butterflies that pollinate them that are unique oh. to the pawpaw that... Oh. Um, once um but just in case i guess because we're always like trying to maximize our production like yeah, how much yeah. how many then we're like no we're just gonna make sure this time so we take a little brush and we just cross pollinate both both trees um to help the fly the flies along and maybe we'll see some more zebra um swallowtail butterflies pollinate them yeah they like growing by the banks of rivers okay and we have lots of flies when you have cattle because Anywhere you have poop, you have flies. So yes, that's what I was thinking of when you so said I that the livestock was there. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I'll have to because we normally have quite a bit of flies. Though I have hand pollinated, not pawpaws, obviously. I have hand pollinated some of our other fruit before I brought in mason bees because I was mm -hmm. noticing um, I have a lot more pollinator plants now than when we first moved on our property. But when I first put in our fruit trees, we actually, I wasn't getting very much harvest, even though the trees were of age and I had lots of blossoms and cross-pollinating varieties. And so mm -hmm. I hand-pollinated for a year and then I thought, okay, we are bringing in mason bees. I wasn't ready to do honeybees. And yeah. then I've planted a lot more pollinators now, so I don't have to knock on wood hand-pollinate anymore. But um, it's actually, it, it can be very laborious if you've got a lot of trees and large trees yeah. to try to hand pollinate, but it's kind of fun. I felt like a little bit like a little garden fairy with my paintbrush. <laughs> I thought it was kind of fun, actually. <laughs> oh, I think that's really inspirational what you said about you just bring the mason bees in and, you know, and having more of those pollinator plants just changed everything for you. I think hopefully that'll, you know, get people growing more of the flowers and myself as well. Just keep on adding flowers and keep on yeah. adding pollinator plants. So yeah. thank you for that, Melissa. Oh, yeah. And I, so we've been actually talking uh, quite a bit about a lot about permaculture. And I know that's something that you guys really employ in order to get as much as possible out of your, your smaller space. And I, I know a lot of times people have some questions or we are hearing the term permaculture more and more, which I think is fabulous. It's, it's becoming something that people are talking about more even in mainstream gardening and society, et cetera. But I think a, a lot of people may have heard the term here or there, but maybe aren't 100% sure what permaculture and orga organic gardening mean? Are they, you know, kind of the, the same thing or the difference or how they work together? So do you guys want to um, maybe expound and kind of explain a little bit how you've used permaculture in your space um, and what it's meant for your guys' production? Sure. So uh, permaculture is a design system that was born in Australia in the 70s. 
when David Holmgren and his thesis advisor, Bill Mollison, coined the word from the, the concept of permanent agriculture. So it's, that was 40 or 50 years ago. So it's, it's changed a lot. It's kind of spread around the, the world and it's, it's starting to become more popular. But in general, permaculture is looking at the functional relationships that occur naturally in your garden or your home or your community. So as a permaculture designer, you're looking at the more of the ecology of the system. And you're instead of uh, in a traditional kind of like monocrop uh, environment, you're, you're growing things uh, and you're not really paying attention to whatever the natural environment is. But in permaculture, you're looking at that, um, the relationships that are, are present in nature between the, the organisms in the soil, between plants that, that uh, grow well together and, and the different spaces that they occupy. And you're trying to maximize that so that uh, you're, you're kind of piggybacking off of nature. And uh, because of that, nature is actually the most productive agricultural system. So you're, you're putting less effort into it and, and uh, getting a, a lot of benefit from that. So uh, there's a lot of things that you would observe in your yard when, if you wanted uh, to do a cult, uh, permaculture. So these things would be like how the sun moves through your property, how uh, w the, all the energy that moves through your property. So you're looking at how the, the water flows through the property, the different microclimates that exist there, uh, the winds and things like that. But you're also looking at the plant life. So the, the, especially looking at the soil, there's a lot of um, functional relationships between organisms in the soil that can really affect the health of your plants. Yeah, and as a result, permaculture systems aim to inherently be no waste. They are cyclical, even spiral systems that get better with time, with each turn of the season. And there's a succession that makes the growth more efficient, more stable, more stable, more diverse, more abundant. And um, the permaculture designer's role in all of this is to shepherd and guide this system, reducing the amount of garden work. And what I love about permaculture and um, I love a, I. I love about this podcast is that you're a woman of faith, Melissa. And one thing that drew us to permaculture, Dave and I, was that its principles were universals. And for me, um, I've off, I, once a year I give around the Christian season of Lent, I give a webinar on finding God in the garden and basically just looking at the patterns because that's how the, the fingerprint of God is, is revealed. Yeah. And it's a big part of permaculture is just to observe is to observe the natural patterns, those cyclical patterns. And when you think about how um, nature's way is that sort of spiral, that beginning and beginning again, and that everything is renewed or better each turnaround, each, each year in your garden, it's sort of like, why do we? So I love everything that you shared about getting to watch it and how permaculture really helps you know, as you said, as we go through those seasons and through those life cycles and it builds upon it. And so every year things become stronger and usually more improved and healthier and in really observing and instead of working against nature is trying to work with it. And I even have shared a lot on picking varieties and plants that grow well in your climate. Don't try to pick things that you're going to have a real big struggle with. And so I love that because you guys are really sharing the same thing. 
And beyond the observation, which I think is really key in understanding your land, exactly how you said, for people who are wanting to implement more of the permaculture growing into their gardens and in their yards and stuff, beyond, or I should say, doing the observation first, but then what are a few other steps that you would recommend that people start with on implementing permaculture? Sure. So uh, in a small space, permaculture can, can be, kind of be confusing because you, there's all these large concepts in terms of uh, all these, there's a lot of, you don't know exactly where to, to start. So what, what we do is we try, we kind of feel that permaculture is this ongoing spiral of improving your garden. You're not going to get it perfect the first time around. So in that first cycle through the spiral, we kind of recommend it, keeping it simple and focusing on a single season of, of growing in, in your garden, whether that's a few containers on a, a deck or a raised bed or other garden area. So in that first go rounds uh, of this, of the spiral, you're, you're just trying to focus on starting to integrate different systems in, in your, your garden. What we recommend is let's say you've only grown a few varieties of annuals before. So we're trying to get a more diverse set of, of annual crops. So there's, there's, I think, seven main plant families that annuals come from. So trying to diversify the, the things that you're growing in your raised bed so that you try to get at least one of each of those plant families in each of the raised beds. And that's from the annual side. And then in that first go around, just maybe picking a few perennial elements that will last longer than a few years that you start to put in there. So maybe you put in a, a berry bush, maybe you put in a, a, a fruit tree or uh, some uh, pollinator flowers that will improve your tomato harvest. But you, you, you don't try to go crazy initially because that can be quite overwhelming. A lot, a lot of people will try to design their whole, you know, they might have a quarter uh, acre backyard and they'll, they'll design everything and it'll become a little bit too overwhelming to actually implement all of that. Uh, and, and what's useful is if you start out small, you might have a plan for what eventually you would like it to look like, but then you can see what works and what doesn't work and then cycle back after that first go round and tweak the things that you've you now learned from, from what you've grown in that space. Oh, yeah, I love that. And I have to say, we've been on our property since, oh goodness, I'm gonna try to do math in my head here. <laughs> since 2006, so um, for 14 years. And I still, I'm just like you said, I'm still every year coming back and looking and being like, okay, well, this was working. This didn't work. Let's change this here. Let's add this. And, and so I think that's such good advice is to not try and do everything all at once and to know that it's going to evolve and change even years out and, and just to expect that as part of the process, I think is really key. Cause I think a lot of times people get in their head, like it needs to look this certain way, or this is what they want and they want to do it all at once and not, and then if it doesn't work out, then they feel like, Oh man, well, you know, I failed at this. Um, and so I think if we go into it with that expectation that it's going to continually change and continually continue to evolve and become better and better each year, that you'll be a lot happier with your garden. 
Yeah, uh, one of the big things in, in permaculture is this idea of stacking functions. So that's where you have it, uh, these functional elements in your garden that, that help each other. For example, you have a, a deep taprooted plant that dredges up um, lots of nutrients that the plants that you're growing around that plant will be able to utilize to, to grow larger, but it's also pro providing some kind of edible crop. So the, the thing that a lot of uh, people who are new to permaculture and the mistake they make is they're trying, it's kind of like a puzzle. They're trying to get as many uh, functions stacked right at the beginning. Uh, where what we've discovered through our experience, it's more like you, as you go back, you figure out, oh, okay, now I can integrate this other system into this thing that's already existing in our garden. So for example, we, a couple of years back, I started getting into mushroom gardening and there are spaces because our, our backyard is north facing, there are areas like under our deck that, that get no sun, but are perfect for growing mushrooms. But if I had tried to integrate that in right at the beginning, it would have been overwhelming. But, but now I can kind of integrate these additional functional elements into our garden uh, more naturally. Oh, I love that. In fact, it's so funny. We just started, uh, we have wild mushrooms that grow here that we forage, but we just got our first uh, mushroom spores and we just have our very first two little baby lion's mane mushrooms growing right now. It's so Ooh, cute. I'm so excited. Yeah. It's so cute to have and harvest and eat. And yeah, we have them for breakfast. Oh, and especially when, yeah, when they start getting those teeth, what they call the teeth. Yeah. I can't, I can't wait. I'm really excited. We have found them growing wild here. Um, but I thought, okay, well, we know that they're, they grow in this environment. They already grow here natively. So mm -hmm. let's see if we can bring some spores in and get more of them growing um, here on our property. So I'm, I'm really excited that you mentioned mushrooms because that's a new venture for us trying to, act, to grow them from spores and not just having them be out, out in, in the wild. Um, so I'm excited about that. Oh my gosh. So exciting. excited yeah, for you, you too. Are you using Thanks. logs? To, did you inoculate logs with them or are you... So we got like, for, to start off with, we, we kind of wanted to test it. And so we got a, um, it's not a log that we've drilled into and inoculated yet. That's going to be our next one. Right now it's actually in my back bathroom where it's supposed to be the pool. <laughs> we've got this, this little, um, it came like wrapped and it's like the spores are in like this, this little log that, so basically the inoculation has been done for us. And so we just have to keep it moist and out of direct light and between 50 and 70 degrees with the ideal humidity. So it was just kind of a test. Like, let's see if we can do this just in our, in the, back bathroom which is the coolest spot in the house right now um and so we're really excited we're on day uh 12 and have got they're probably about an inch right now um, oh cute they're awesome. pinning <laughs> yeah so it's very exciting and so then we'll um kind of this was our first like foray and so my husband's like well let's just test it like this now um and then if that if we're like excited and it goes well then we'll look at doing some actual inoculation on logs out outside um, that type of thing. So, oh yeah, I'm sure like you, it'll one. grow. Yes, I'm sure it'll grow so well for you because of your climate, and that's where, you know, the fungi, the fungi movement started. Yes, yes. in America. 
Yes. Yeah, so oh, wonderful. Cool, yeah. Cool Pacific Northwest. We're, we're usually pretty well suited to, to most of it. So anyways, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. It's kind of that and Papa's apparently are my, my pet growing projects this year. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very exciting stuff. But what other thing that you guys had mentioned that I thought would be really fun because we employ all organic gardening here and I've done quite a few different podcast episodes and in, in talking about, you know, what organic actually means for a backyard gardener and, and agri, and then for large agriculture and farming and et cetera. Um, but I love this. You say that you guys have something that you teach that's 10 things that most organic gardeners forget about, which naturally intrigued me. And I'm like, okay, well, you have to share because what if I'm forgetting one of these things? So <laughs> I, I would love for you to, to go through that. Well, if you have a few minutes, I can sing you these 10 steps. Because oh, yes, yes. yes. Well, when I first learned permaculture, we learned something called PA Yeoman scales of permanence. And PA Yeomans was an Australian engineer who in the 50s, the 1950s, developed these scales of permanence as a tool to evaluate or assess your land. So once again, we're going back to just learning your land. So the 10 crucial steps I'm about to sing really quickly are an adaptation of the original ones, but basically because it has depending on who you get as your permaculture teacher, they'll change it a little bit to um, suit like backyard gardening. And the underlying principle is before you work your land, you really, I mean, really have to get to know it. So especially before you do earthworks where you move the land and, and especially if there are organic gardeners out there who are doing uh, organic gardening um, with a more on like the aesthetic reasons uh, rather than the functional I think both are important, but it's important to listen to the land. So here goes. First thing is to observe tooth. Think holistically. Three, note your zones of use. So the first two we've kind of talked about, we always look at the bigger picture of where um, your garden lies and um, as in, the in this whole scope of your property. Um, the third, zones of use, is actually the frequency in which you visit a specific area in your land. So um, where would it make more sense to have your kitchen garden? It would naturally make more sense to have it where you can easily reach it close to your kitchen, which is a zone of use that would probably be called number one, which is more frequently visited than a zone five, which is more of your um, foraging areas and uh, the places that you, you visit least frequently. In fact, Bill Mollison, uh, the, the person that Dave mentioned earlier, the, um, who used this, who coined the word with his student, David Holmgren, permaculture, used to say that in the morning, when you make your omelets, put on your fuzzy slippers and get your chives from your backyard. If you come back and your fuzzy slippers are wet, then you've put them too far away <laughs> so so things like that you know like just just making sense of how often do I where does it make sense so four note your local climate five know your microclimate which we talked about a lot six note topography and the topography of the land helps you figure out where um the certain the hills are and where natural the water would naturally drain in a smaller space, it would be how much water runs off your roof should be another thing to consider because the water, especially if you have listeners who live in the more arid climate zones of America, those places 
need their most important thing is water is trying to capture that water and we we often neglect that we uh, we often forget that we can capture that water from our roofs and um and that's an area that if we could just direct the downspouts we learned this from another permaculture author uh, a, a friend of ours amy strauss directing her downspouts into the land and making little drainage, drainage ditches that would direct the water into her garden. Um, that, that, makes, that can make sense, right? So how much? I'll start from the start. First thing is to observe, to think holistically. Three, note your zones of use. Four, know your local climate. Five, find your microclimate. Six, note topography. How much water? runs off your roof where do people go so the seventh or i don't know eighth part is um the paths considering the paths that uh, the traffic areas or even where your animals often graze or where you see the deer come in all the time and sometimes we we try to force certain paths because we want to maximize space that was our case we wanted to maximize our growing space and so we just blocked pathways because we were trying to make everything a garden bed um, and so we had to sacrifice some of that in order to facilitate the movement around your property um, so where do people go investigate the weeds that you don't know and each of the weeds that you see coming out of your backyard um, or your front yard or your property really tell a story. They tell a story of what the soil needs in that particular area. And um, if you see the root roots that are very hair net like, um, those kinds of weeds are trying to bring the rocky soil, keep them from crumbling. Um, if you see weeds that are very deep tap rooted they're trying to break compacted soil so those would be like the dandelions and um chickweed <laughs> they're always trying to they're trying to break through the the compacted clay soil that we have um and some of them are herbal so so it's great to investigate your weeds so all right let's go back where do people go go investigate the weeds that you don't know and then finally make it look pretty find a shape in your yard it's fun to wander through the 10 steps with you and i don't know the rest of my song but that's it those are the 10 steps and the reason i made them is because i could never remember what the scales of permanence were and so i just made a song so that i could teach others to remember what it was but the last one um which uh, my teacher added which was not in the original scales of permanence was the aesthetics and that's because and that's kind of like the marketing of your garden if you're trying to <laughs> trying to promote this message of come on let's grow things especially in suburban urban areas if it doesn't look good then people won't buy it and they won't believe in your message yet <laughs> until they start seeing it looks good and it tastes good and and so yeah so those are the 10 steps Oh my god! Okay, I love it, and I love that you sang it. Seriously, <laughs> I was, I'm like, oh, this is so awesome! So I'm so glad that you shared that. And um, gosh, there is just a wealth of information in those ten steps. So yeah, I would love it if you email it to me. Um, I want it. I want to have it written down. And that was that was so much fun. And I'm with you. I used to be a very my garden's primary focus was just on food production. And then about gosh, I think going on about four years now. 
I really started to switch that. And it still is about food production, but I really wanted it to, like you said, to look pretty and to be a place that I enjoyed being just visually, even if I wasn't harvesting, um, even though I do both of those together now. And so I love that you added in that it should look pretty and it has that visual aesthetic to it. So I think that was an excellent thing to add in there. Oh, thanks. It was, yeah, it's, I always have that because I do have being in the urban um, place where you have, or meeting people who are both um, vegetable growers and then you have the ornamentalists, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of want to marry those two and have the best of both worlds because you, 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 and I'm still struggling. Like I go to Amy Strauss, the, the author that I mentioned for help with making my front yard edible. Cause we have been cited by the HOA edible and beautiful at the same time, because we have been cited by the HOA several times. So it's an ongoing struggle, but I think that's a, that's a key. If people want that, I think it's not something that I neglect. I say, yes, we should be, you know, we grow the homestead, but um, you're right. That's a different sort of yield. That's more like spiritual and peaceful and calming that you enjoy your yard. Yeah. And I think especially because at the time we're recording this, we're still in amongst the COVID-19 and a lot of shelter in place orders for different states. Mine is one of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm spending more time at home. I already was a pretty much of a homebody. I worked, I work from home and we spend a lot of time here. We're not huge travelers or on the go a lot, but I'm spending more time than ever at home and in my own yard. And so I actually just, um, we removed some sod and are expanding one of my herbal um, cottage garden areas because I'm like, well, I mean, the lawn's okay, but really we've got this space, let's maximize it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm putting in an entire new bed and we're also putting in, um, I'm tripling my asparagus crowns. Like we're adding quite a bit uh, more perennials um, Mm -hmm. this year um, for both food and medicine and just beauty. So I think it's something important because a lot of us are going to be spending even more time than we probably have normally in our yards and in our own gardens. So um, thank you guys so much for coming on. There was a wealth of information that you shared. I really enjoyed our time together. Um, And one final question, you guys, and you've mentioned too, your garden mentor and permaculture mentor. So what is um, that you guys do the grow it yourself and what do you consider or what exactly do you mean by the term garden mentor? So uh, grow it yourself is a, our premium subscription service where we basically provide informational resources, an online community of like-minded growers, uh, free heirloom seeds and cuttings and, and virtual coaching using uh, regular Zoom calls to help people get their gardens more productive and sustainable. So the, the idea for this service came about because uh, Nikki used to do a lot of in-person. When we discovered permaculture, which was about six or seven years ago, um, Nikki used to do a lot of in-person con- consulting and we have six kids. So it, we just felt like we weren't making as much of an impact as we'd like to with the limited time that we we have and that we'd have to drag the kids along along to a lot of these things so um we were also doing a lot of online webinars and articles and generating a a huge amount of of content so we wanted to organize it a bit to make it more structured and accessible so our our main intent with uh giy wrote yourself is to build an online community of like-minded individuals to create that that permanent community online 
uh, to tie in with the permaculture thing that is dedicated to growing their own food. So we currently have a, a, a core course that we've created, which goes through that first spiral that we were talking about, starts with teaching people how to start their own seeds successfully, how to trans, uh, choose the kind of things that they would grow based off a, a kind of a planting calendar, um, and then go get through a harvest in about three months. Then we have, once they complete that core course, we have additional masterclasses to get into some of the more advanced topics like composting or integrating mushrooms into, into your gardening or backyard orcharding. So, so GIY is evolving, uh, but we're also working on software tools to help manage the production side of gardening because it, once you get up to a certain point where you're getting quite a lot of harvest, it's, it's a little difficult to, to take notes and manage all of that stuff. So I'm, I'm a software developer by trade. So I'm really interested in uh, creating digital tools to help people uh, manage all the information and manage their, their gardens to, to help keep them uh, organized. And we're also interested in storing and structuring all the useful information that we gather from these people who, who participate in GIY into something that becomes a, a permanent, easily searchable agricultural reference. Or even people who aren't like, you're a wealth, a treasure trove of information, Melissa, and all your data and information. You know, once we once we figure out what this um, database, gardening database, would look like and how it would be easily searchable, um, you know, we would be able to pull from different communities and and different grow, grow, growers around the states and around the world, even. Got it. Okay, I love that. Well, thank you guys so much for sharing. I feel like this time has opened so many people's eyes to the need to not just think about gardening but to actually jump in and do it if they weren't already and then for those who were already gardening myself included is looking at ways that i can increase what we're growing here in our own backyards and bring in even you know more food not just to, as far as volume but even more varieties and so thank you guys so much for for just helping um, other people myself included do that as well so i really enjoyed our time together and we'll have to get back together again um i had so much fun so thank you yeah, yes and we're looking forward to your um speaking to our audience as well melissa on on uh, canning and preserving soon so we look forward oh. to, we to, to speaking to you again that we will we will speak again in the future yeah no it'll doubt. be thank you yeah, I know, you're talking about cycles and, and the spirals. And I'm like, it's first, it's the planning and the planting and getting the food in. And then for me, boom, it moves right into preserving. So which is not exactly what we were meeting when we were talking about permaculture, but I feel like it definitely follows those guidelines. So yeah, yeah. thank you guys. We'll have a great day. And thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's pleasure. great to chat with uh, hardcore <laughs> fellow it's nerd <laughs> it's, I know, it's really fun to be around people who get it because if you're not a gardener you're not interested in it you can always tell because especially in person which we're having less of these days uh, but you know people are so for the most part sweet and polite but you can tell when you're talking to someone who's interested in it because like their face lights up and you know their their voice changes and you can hear the excitement and that's really fun because that can be a little bit few and far between so <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for all you do for us.
for this podcast and for your blog and your books. Oh, thanks, guys. Same to You're you. Welcome. I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Nikki and Dave were so much fun, shared so much good information. And if you are planning on growing more of your own food this year, or you're already growing more of your own food, and you need a guide on knowing when things are ready to harvest, how many pounds you need of certain produce in order to then preserve it up, and what are the best ways to preserve it? Is it canning? Is it dehydrating? Is it freezing? Is it fermenting? Is it maybe all, all of those? You want to make sure that you get your hands on my new book, or I should say my newest book. It came out in January, The Family Garden Plan. There are amazing charts in there that show you not only how much to plant for the planning part, but also take you through the harvest period. And if you're starting to see any pests and or disease, because this is usually the time that those start to make an appearance, there is incredible charts inside there, along with different recipes and items to use all organic and natural to help you combat disease and pests so that you get your maximum amount of harvest. So you can go to familygardenplan.com and get your copy of the book. Thank you guys so much. And I can't wait to be back here with you next week. Mm -hmm.